In this episode of the Euctropolis Podcast, YouTube Comments. Welcome back to the Euctropolis Podcast for more real ukulele answers to real ukulele questions. I'm your host, James Hill. And in this episode, I'm going to do something that I've never done before. I'm going to go outside the Euctropolis bubble and take questions from YouTubers. So buckle up. <laughs> Let's see what we get. As you know, YouTube can be a jungle. Uh, comments can go right off the deep end really quickly. And I just want to start by taking my hat off to the YouTube ukulele community for keeping things really positive and sincere and supportive when the you know relative anonymity of YouTube could lead people and does lead people uh, into very dark places in these comment sections. But you know what? The overwhelming majority of comments and questions that are posted uh, on my videos on YouTube are positive, they're supportive, and sincere. And I just want to tip my hat to uh, those of you who have participated on YouTube. Thank you so much for keeping it um, about ukulele and maintaining the spirit of the ukulele in those conversations. Thank you. The first question today comes from Lydia, and she's just finished watching uh, quite a recent video, actually, that I posted to YouTube called Ukulele Jazz for Beginners. And this video came out in tandem with the launch of the complete ukulele jazz course at Euctropolis as sort of a, a, a way to get people believing in themselves <laughs> that, you know, yes, you can play jazz and jazz is not as scary as you might think. In fact, sometimes it's easier than the things you thought were easy. So I wanted to put out a video that really outlined that for people and gave them some confidence. And Lydia has just finished watching this video, Ukulele Jazz for Beginners. And she says, hello, James, thanks for that. I'm on Booster Uke right now. So she is actually a student at Euctropolis, but not in the jazz course. And she says, now I'll have the wonderfully agonizing choice of whether to do ukulele jazz or the ukulele way after I'm finished with Booster Uke. She says, life used to be so simple. <laughs> I want to take a moment to uh, speak to this because there are uh, a few students who I've talked to recently who have been in the same boat. And the issue is that when you start with Euctropolis, if you start from the very beginning and you do Ready Steady Ukulele for one dollar, that's the absolute beginner course, then the path from there is pretty clear. You go on to uh, Booster Uke, which is super fun. It's still the most popular course on Euctropolis. And then after that, there's this kind of fork in the road, or at least that's what it seems like where you can either go with the ukulele way, which is for intermediate to advanced players, and you can also go for ukulele jazz, which is also aimed at intermediate players who want to take that step to becoming advanced players. And so what do you do? <laughs> well, 
let me just clarify what those two paths actually mean. The ukulele way is totally devoted to one style of playing. And that style of playing is what I call the solo style of ukulele. Uh, I grew up with that term, solo ukulele. And understanding that to mean that you could play on your own, on the stage, with no accompaniment, because you are playing the melody, the chords, and the rhythm simultaneously on one instrument. So you could play the concert solo. That's solo ukulele. And as an example, instead of playing just a melody, I would add chords to that to create a solo arrangement, something like this. Okay, that's an example of one of the arrangements from the ukulele way, where you take a simple melody and you build the rest of the, the musical accompaniment around it, and you learn how to play both at the same time. That's a style of playing. It's not a style of music. It's, a, it's an approach to the instrument. So we can do this with jazz songs. We can do this with folk melodies. We can do it with classical pieces. And that's exactly what the ukulele way does. It's not one genre of music. It's one style of playing. And that's the solo, what sometimes is called the chord melody style of playing. So that's one path that you have. And that is such a journey unto itself that you really need to focus on it. And you need to have sequential lessons, a methodical approach, and some great repertoire to really motivate you to continue down that path. That's exactly what the ukulele way is about. Now, on the other hand, you have this new course, Ukulele Jazz which is entirely devoted to one thing as well. But it's entirely devoted to one genre of music. It's entirely devoted to jazz. It's not all about how to play the melody and the chords and the rhythm simultaneously. In fact, we take each one separately. You, you dive headlong into jazz. You learn how to play the chords, how to understand the harmony. You learn how to... Uh, improvise and pick the melodies, you learn how to sing the melodies, but you don't learn how to play them all simultaneously. That would just be kind of nuts. I mean, that would just be too much. So ukulele jazz takes a deep dive into one style of music, and the ukulele way takes a deep dive into one style of ukulele playing. So that might sound like a subtle distinction, but it's it's pretty massive when it comes down to the tin tacks of what you're actually practicing from lesson to lesson. So if you love playing all the parts all at once on one ukulele, it's the ukulele way for you. And if you love jazz, or if you're very curious about jazz, then ukulele jazz is for you. But what I've been finding is that a lot of students say, look, I'm just, I just didn't want to make a decision. I'm doing both. I'm jumping back and forth between them. And they're really complimentary. Anytime I wake up in the morning and I don't feel like learning a solo ukulele arrangement, 
I just pop over to Ukulele Jazz. It's right there in the same account. I don't have to log in twice. I just can go back and forth between these courses. And they just keep each other interesting. So all that to say that, you know, be clear about what those two paths are. But in the end, a lot of students are saying, I just didn't want to choose. I'm doing both. So Lydia, good question. It's up to you. And I hope that explanation helps. Now, I want to keep going just for a sec on Lydia's question because she, in the same comment, gets to a more specific question, and that is um, this one. The B-flat major 7 chord, she says, sounds so mournful. She says, why does it sound so mournful if it's a jolly major chord? B-flat major 7. Why doesn't it sound a little more jolly? (laughs) I thought this was such a good question because, you know, I'm not sure if I would choose the word mournful for this, but certainly more introspective and more complex than the B-flat major chord, which is that. But when I put that major 7 in there... I get a really different take on the the B-flat harmony. So this is a great question, and and it gets back to the fact that um, in jazz, the basic unit of harmony is a four-note chord. Whereas in a lot of pop music and folk music, the basic unit of harmony is a three-note chord. So there's a three-note chord called C. Here's a three-note chord called F. Here's a three-note chord called G. And back to C. Now, even though I'm playing those on a four-string instrument, it looks like I'm playing four different notes. As many of you know already, one of those notes is doubled. If you look closely, you'll find which one it is in in any given chord, in any given triad, I should say, like C, F, or G. But the minute you start adding numbers to the chord names, it usually means that we've got um, more than three notes, and that's exactly what happens in jazz. So C major 7, maybe F6, Maybe G9 or C6. And that sounds really different from the first thing that I played. This is very different than this. But if you look closely at each chord, the only difference is that there's one extra note. And what a difference one note can make. Now, understanding which note to add to each one of those chords to make it sound jazzy, well, you know, that's what the ukulele jazz course is in part about. Understanding which note takes some time, but the basic concept that, well, I can go from a three-note chord to a four-note chord, and that is, to a large extent, what makes jazz sound jazzy, 
That is something that you can get right now. If you've never come across that little tidbit of information, then, well, there it is. So when we go from the B flat to the B flat major seven, that's exactly what's happening. And that's a big reason why it takes on a, well, as Lydia says to her, it's a mournful quality. It certainly changes on a dime by adding that one note. It takes me back to high school chemistry class. I was really not good at chemistry. Um, looking back on it, I don't, I don't know why. I mean, I think chemistry is fascinating. It's just something about it didn't click for me. And um, I do remember, though, some of the experiments we did. And, and one that made an impression on me was, uh, I think it was titration, where, you'll have to correct me if I'm wrong here, but you, you have sort of a solution that's, that's one color, and then you put one drop of another solution into it, and it changes the color of the entire thing. Like one drop of this chemical would change the color of the entire solution in the, in the beaker. And jazz harmony, the transition from pop and folk harmony of three notes to jazz harmony with four notes plus that's a lot like that you just you know one drop one extra note changes the hue of the entire harmony in a in a really pronounced way so that's what i think of when i think of uh, this example that lydia is bringing up and i hope that helps lydia um, thanks for the comment thanks for the questions I'm going to turn now to a video that I posted a while back called How to Strum Really Fast and a comment that came through from Mia. Now this video, How to Strum Really Fast, is slightly misnamed because it's not just about how to strum really fast. It's really about how to set yourself up so that you have the posture and the position and the movement of the hand so that you can strum fast if you want, but you don't have to. It's just basically strum fundamentals. And so Mia posts a question below that video and she says, um, yeah, I still don't know how to strum. Do I strum with the back of my finger? Uh, my finger just gets stuck on the strings. After about a month of learning the uke, I still don't know how to strum. Okay, so Mia, and this was posted only two days ago, so um, I hope and somehow this podcast gets to you. Um, first of all, give yourself a little more time. Uh, you've only been at it for a month, and uh, strumming is not easy. I know it looks easy when, when people do it. You know, you go to a jam session and people are strumming away, but you really need to give yourself more than a month. Give yourself a budget of time and say, look, I'm going to practice every day, even if it's for five minutes, and I'm going to give myself three months to feel comfortable strumming. Okay, now you're getting a little more realistic. You know, you've only been at it for three or four weeks. 
you'll get there. It does take time. But I want to look more closely at the comment that you've made here. Um, do I strum with the back of my finger? This is a question that I get from time to time, and I and I think it just we just need to clarify some of the terminology. Like, is it the back of the finger? Is it the front of the finger? Is it the side of the finger? You know, what are we actually talking about here? And instead of talking back, front, or side, I like to just talk about the nail or the pad. This is something that Jamie Thomas and Peter Luongo and Chalmers Doan, um, some of my childhood teachers, always um, use this kind of terminology, the, the nail or the pad, because that's more, it's more clear what's happening. When I strum down, I'm making contact with the nail, and when I strum up, I'm making contact with the pad of the finger, of the index finger. And what's amazing about this is that um, I'm going to get a, a brighter tone when I use the nail because the nail is a harder material, right? So I'm going to get a brightness in that strum and a mellowness in the strum when I come up with the finger pad. So that's pretty cool that our fingers are two-sided. We've got one hard side and one soft side. And depending on the tone you want, you would choose the hard side or the soft side to strum with. And the really amazing thing is that your thumb is also designed that way, where it has one side with a nail on it that gives you a a brighter, more uh, brash tone, and the other side, which is more mellow and soft. And the fact that these are opposing each other, the finger and the thumb, mean that you can get either one of those bright or mellow sounds in either direction. So if I want to sound mellow all the time with all of my strums, I would use thumb on the way down and index pad on the way up. Like if I was strumming a lullaby. I might use that because it's just very mellow, just the pads of the fingers. Lovely sound. But if I wanted to sound brighter and bolder and louder uh, and more brash, well, then I need that nail sound. So I might go down with the index finger. Right? And... um, I might even go up with the thumb if I want to get all nail all the time. You know, that wouldn't be my choice for a lullaby, but it gives me that brashness and the brightness in both directions. So now it's really up to you to to figure out what is the sound that you're going for and therefore which finger or... (laughs) digit you're using on the way down and the way up. So that's my first bit of advice. Start from the sound and work backwards to the strum. Start with the sound that you want and from there decide on what technique you're going to need to use. But the other thing here is as I read this very short comment and keep in mind that I don't know Mia and this short comment under a YouTube video is the complete extent of our exchange. You know, this is all I have. 
but there's one other thing that catches my eye as I try to read between the lines and imagine what kind of um, difficulties you're having in your playing. I want to zero in on where you say, uh, my finger just gets stuck on the strings. This, I think, is probably because uh, of contact point. And contact point is just the place where your finger strikes the string. You know, is it down by the bridge? Is it over the sound hole? Is it up over the fretboard? You know, where is that point of contact? And each point of contact gives you very different results. So if I strum down close to the bridge, I get a very brittle sound. If I strum more or less over the sound hole, I get a very different sound. If I strum further up over top of the fretboard where the neck and the body meet, I get a different sound again. If I keep going till I'm, you know, strumming up around the seventh fret, I get another sound. Now, it's not just about the sound in this case, it's also about the way it feels. And personally, I always recommend to people that they strum, as a general rule, where the neck and the body meet. Because first of all, I think you get a nice warm tone that's also clear. And that goes against the grain of what you might have seen guitar players do, because you often see guitar players playing over the sound hole, and there's nothing wrong with that. But guitar is a different instrument, and, and the proportions are different, and the way that it feels in your hands is different. The technique for playing is often different. So when Mia says, I'm getting stuck on the strings, I'm just imagining, Mia, that you are trying to strum more or less over the sound hole, and you'll notice that in that place, with that contact point, there's a lot of space under the string, and there's a lot of opportunity to get stuck under the string as you strum. But if you move your contact point further down the string, closer to where the neck and the body meet, then you're over the fretboard, and the amount of space under the string is reduced. And that means that it's actually kind of hard to get stuck under the string at that place. So it may be as simple as just moving that contact point from over the sound hole to where the neck and the body meet. You'll hear a difference in the sound, and hopefully you will stop getting stuck under the string. Good luck, and thanks for the comment. Let's do one more quick question. This one is about a video that I did called How Not to Hold the Ukulele. It's 
really just about posture, holding the instrument. It's a video I direct people to when they have you know, problems with the instrument slipping away from them. For example, when they're changing chords, you know, they're dropping the instrument. And this video was intended to address some of those issues. And if if that's you, then you know, definitely check this video out, How Not to Hold the Ukulele. But this comment here comes from a user named Pie Cookies on YouTube. And Pie Cookies says, I usually put my thumb on the back of the neck to hold it. I taught myself, and so I've been trying to figure out what bad habits I've made. Okay, this is a good question. And the position of the thumb does have a lot to do with the the overall posture of the ukulele and your ability to hold the instrument while also being free to move around the fretboard. And, uh, you know, I'm going to go back in my memory bank here. I remember when I was a kid in class, you know, like grade four, grade five, with Jamie Thomas, who's an incredible sort of dynamic uh, just force of nature in, in the classroom, very fun. He would come around the class and he had this running gag where it's like, if I see your thumbs poking out from behind the neck, you know, I'm going to come by and just snip them off with my garden shears. And, you know, that sounds <laughs> just terrifying now, now that I say it out of context. But in the moment, it was just fun and silly and, well... <laughs> You had to be there. So anyway, um, the idea of keeping the thumb behind the neck where it can support the fingers and be opposing the fingers so that you have a vice grip between the thumb and the fingers, you know, that makes a lot of sense. The, the opposable thumb is a miraculous thing. And when you go to pick up a heavy object, you know, you pick it up like that. You You pinch it in your between your thumb and your fingers, because that's where you get the strength. So it makes sense to do the same thing, especially for folks who are starting out and kids who need as much strength under the fingertips as they can get. That makes sense, but it's not the whole story. It's a starting point. So as you grow and continue to explore this instrument, I think you'll find that the thumb position ultimately is a dynamic thing, and it depends on what you're trying to do, uh, where the thumb is going to be. And this can take many forms. I mean, uh, for example, if you play a diminished seven chord, a four-finger chord where each finger has a note that it's responsible for, you might find that your thumb is moving around to the side of the neck, almost almost but not quite touching the fourth string. That's where my thumb is when I'm playing chords like that, which happens all the time in jazz. I find that just makes sense, because saying that the thumb should always be behind the neck and hidden from view, that is just a starting point. It doesn't take into account the demands, the new demands that you are making on your hand as you move into more complex repertoire and as you move up the neck. So of course, as you introduce new and more acrobatic uh, finger positions, 
the thumb is going to have to accommodate those. Sure, when I go back to playing the songs that I was playing in, in grade four and five, having the thumb behind the neck and hidden from view is totally cool. That makes sense completely. But um, that sort of side thumb position uh, makes a lot of sense as well as you move into new repertoire. This can take on a more extreme form when you start using the thumb to actually fret notes uh, to come right over and play notes on that fourth string, sort of the Jimi Hendrix style of using the thumb. Uh, it can go one step further if, you know, for example, in Ukulele X, that's the course that I wrote on extreme ukulele playing. Uh, there's a couple of lessons in there that talk about the monostrum. And that's a technique that I use all the time uh, where you strum all the strings, but you only end up hearing one note. And sometimes that means the thumb coming all the way over and muting both the C and the G strings so that you only hear the E string. Now that's a really extreme thumb position, but it's useful. And you know, if I, if, if I sit here and tell you that the thumb always has to be in a certain place in order to be correct, you know, that that's just wrong. So, I wanted to dive into that a little bit, um, partly because, you know, Pie Cookies has asked the question, am I giving myself a bad habit by having the, the thumb on the back of the neck? The short answer is no. And the longer answer is that thumb position is going to be dynamic and it's going to depend on what sounds you want and what techniques you're using at any given time. But just know that it will change over time, and uh, and also that you've started in the best place, which is use that vice grip and keep the thumb behind the neck for now. I'm going to close out this special YouTube edition of the podcast by sharing just a few comments that made me laugh and to say again how much I appreciate the positivity in the YouTube ukulele community. Thank you so much for your kind comments, your supportive comments, your genuine questions, and for showing me so much love, so much aloha over the years. Thank you so much. First up is a comment from Rajna, who's talking about um, a video where I'm promoting my book, Duets for One. And Rajna says, I just got your book and I'm so excited. Like when I was on the way to my first date several decades ago. <laughs> I love this. I'm so happy that a book of ukulele arrangements can give you that same feeling. Way to go. Uh, next is a comment from Sean. Sean has just watched my arrangement of Voodoo Child, and he says, I was just sitting here feeling inspired with my uke. So I said to my wife, honey, I think I'm going to learn James Hill's version of Voodoo Child. 
I just finished watching Voodoo Child after not seeing it for a while, and I really hope she doesn't remember what I said. <laughs> Sean, I hear you. Seriously, I don't think I would attempt James Hill's version of Voodoo Child right now either. It's when you really have to you really have to warm up to that one or you'll pull a muscle. Uh, here's another one from a user named Dying Malls. Uh, this user says, uh, I can't remember what video this was on. Uh, it says, I like the E-note a lot. I used to have a terrible relationship with it, but I got used to it. And now it sounds good with the songs I play. Smiley emoji. I just love this, you know, that you have a relationship with the notes. Uh, and that that relationship changes over time. I can totally relate to this. Um, over time, there have been certain chords and notes that have been a real slow burn for me that I've gradually warmed up to and now I love, but didn't love at first. So I hear you. I'm going to finish here with one more. This is a comment from Heidi. Heidi is commenting on a video tutorial that I did for one of my favorite jazz standards of all time, Satin Doll by Duke Ellington. If you haven't tried this already, you're going to love it. It's 12 chords with only two chord shapes. This song on the ukulele is way easier than it should be. If this doesn't give you the confidence to try jazz on your ukulele, then nothing will. So check it out. Search Satin Doll Ukulele on YouTube. You'll find it. I know you're going to have fun. This comment from Heidi is great. She says, you know, I've always hated this song, <laughs> but only because I only ever heard it performed as a cheesy Wurlitzer organ arrangement played at a horse track. The arrangement was so off-putting, it soured me on the song, and I've stayed away from Satin Doll for years. But for some reason, she, she stuck around and kept watching this video, and she says, 30 seconds into it, Boom, the light goes on, and now this song is awesome to me. James, you didn't just teach me a chord change. You turned my musical world around in one bar chord combo and taught me to appreciate the song after decades of hate for it in just a handful of minutes. Thanks. That really, uh, it made me laugh, and it also was really touching. I, I love this, that you can... You can learn to love something after making up your mind a long time ago that you didn't like it. I replied to this comment and I said, wow, that's amazing, Heidi. I hope the same thing happens for me and the song MacArthur Park. And she shoots right back and says, some doors man was never meant to open. Thanks for joining me for this YouTube special episode of the Euketropolis podcast. My name is James Hill. I'll be back again next week with another episode. And until then, head over to euketropolis.com. Check out the library of unique online ukulele courses. We've got stuff for beginners, intermediate and advanced players. And most importantly, a really supportive, positive, welcoming community of learners that um, you can be part of. So come on over, join in the fun. And until next week, keep on strumming.